Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. So welcome everyone to the final SNIT of the fall term, a conversation with the Honorable Chancellor Marie Sinclair. First, I'd like to hand over to Alan Dockstader of Oneida First Nation, who is an elder working with the Office of Indigenous Initiatives at Queen's University. And he is going to start us with a welcome. So Al, over to you. Scully, Scully, um, in Bali, you would eat a lot in Unyata Aga, ni Yohunjot. Ano, Kano Hila Duxma. Tayes what the whole say you'd stay, Onochi Nate or Hotun. You only what they tung, Sego Uskajia, Hedwa, when on you, what Nagul. Giaque gung, Uskano, you quite no tony, that you don't have you quite Nagul. Sego Uskajia, Hedwa, when on you, quite Nagul. Sego. <coughs> Tano Teleji Sego. A Gwego, you not to do what on Jay do had eat that to your door, happy partner. Sego is Kajia, hate or when on your partner. That was no way I do. Can he had Nihio Handesa and what he did, he Sego. You three what on Jay do had eat that to your door, happy partner. Sego is Kajia, hate or when on your partner. The Yeti no Lado, and no quat to go Sego. ยงกวัดที่ที่ว่าตรงหาเจตุตรงหาดีแต่ที่อยู่ตรงหาคือคนนึงก็เซโกอุสกะจีอาเฮตัวเฟนอนิยมปัดนึงก็แต่ทวั
And so, so what I was just kind of saying there as I was giving thanks that I, uh, I first of part is that I was saying that that we bring our minds to we listen and um, bring our minds together as one so that we can um, we can hear the word these these words these good words and we give thanks to to um, through all that what I was saying is I was we were giving thanks to Mother Earth for all that she has provided for us um, and that it might um, that we can uh, be together and and, um, and learn together um, in 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 a group. And that is that's it. Uh -huh. Thank you for those beautiful words. Um, my name is Carolyn Prouse. I'm an assistant professor in geography and planning, and I co-chair SNID with Dr. Aicha Tomach of cultural studies and global development studies. And we also work closely with our coordinator, Dairon Perez. Um, many of us at SNID, so organizers and audience members alike, are settlers here on Turtle Island. And we invite everyone to take a moment to reflect on the land on which you are situated um, and to engage in a longer process of learning what your obligations and responsibilities are to that land and to the peoples on whose ancestral and traditional territories you live, work, and play. So SNID is the longest running interdisciplinary seminar series at Queens, uh, and it's committed to highlighting anti-colonial and anti-racist work at the university and also nationally and globally. We were extremely excited when we heard that the Honorable Maurice Sinclair had been appoint appointed Chancellor of Queens University, and we were even more thrilled when he agreed to give a talk or to speak with us at SNID. Today's session will go like this. Uh, I will hand it over to Aicha, who will introduce the chancellor, and then he will speak for a bit, for however long he would like. Um, and then we'll open it up for discussion and question and answers. Uh, so feel free to put questions and comments in the chat as we go along, um, and we can circle back to them after he has spoken. Uh, and we can also use the raise hand feature at the end. So if you'd like to orally engage, then you can do that as well. Um, and I think that's it, so over to Aicha. 
Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, it is with great honor that I introduce the Honorable Chancellor Mary Sinclair, who indeed does not need an introduction. Uh, the Honorable Mary Sinclair is an Anishinaabe from Pegui First Nation. Uh, he has been involved with the justice system in Manitoba for over 40 years. He was the first Indigenous judge appointed in Manitoba and Canada's second. He was the co-chair of the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba and the chief commissioner of Canada's Indian Residential Schools Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He, was, he has won uh, numerous awards, including the National Aboriginal Achievement Award, the Manitoba Bar Association's Equality Award, and its Distinguished Service Award. The Honorable Mary Sinclair has led the Canadian nation in the hard task of finding truth and the harder task of reconciliation. He kindly agreed to take on the role of Chancellor of Queen's University, which still struggles with establishing intentional, respectful and meaningful relationships with indigenous and people of color communities and rebuilding its culture and vision based on decolonization and anti-racism. Uh, Your Honor, it is a true privilege to have you at SNED and here at Queen's. Thank you. language, I greet you and uh, thank you for uh, those kind words and uh, that introduction and for inviting me to be part of this uh, webinar series that you've uh, sponsored and for being able to participate and share with you some of my thoughts about the experiences I've had as well as the um, thoughts that I have about uh, moving forward at Queen's. Um, maybe uh, <clears throat> I'll, I'll get right into the first topic because it, these conversations, and I wanna leave as much possible, as much time as possible at the end for questions and answers. So those of you as you're listening or perhaps you've given some thought to what it is you'd like to ask me, uh, record your comments or make your uh, questions in the, in the future, but uh, or write them down for yourself because uh, I'll deal with as many of them as I can in the time that I've been given. <clears throat> I prefer conversations to doing keynotes. I can remember as a student uh, uh, listening to keynote presentations and no matter how interesting the speaker was at a certain point in time, you started to fall asleep. And I know that that's... Uh, going to happen to some of you who are watching this and you're going to be tempted um, because you're watching it virtually to uh, find uh, uh, something else to do um, uh, and uh, other than sitting here and listening to what I have to say. Uh, so I respect that, but at the same time, I'll do what I can to try to hold your attention for as long as I can. So <clears throat> let me talk a little bit about my own um, coming of age sort of thing uh, early on in my career and uh, how it led me to the doing the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and ultimately I think as well the, the responsibilities of being Chancellor of Queens. Uh, <clears throat> I was um, uh, orphaned at a very young age um, and initially the, my mother passed away when I was a year old, but by then my uh, grandparents had been very involved with my upbringing. 
And so it was just natural that I would continue to stay with them after my mother passed away. She had uh, been in a residential school. She had uh, suffered from tuberculosis while in the school and had spent most of her teenage years in the tuberculosis sanatorium. Uh, and that was what weakened her physically to the point where um, when she gave birth to my younger brother, uh, that uh, she uh, suffered a stroke and, uh, and passed away within uh, a few hours of his birth. And so uh, it was a tremendous loss to my father and my father who had been a, a Second World War veteran and who had himself been very badly injured in the war, spent most of the last year and a half of the war in a hospital uh, recovering from serious injuries that he sustained in a battle. Uh, he uh, wasn't able to handle um, the trauma of that loss as well as the trauma associated after his own experience in the war. And he left us with his parents, his, uh, those were our grandparents, and, and went to live uh, initially in mining camps because he worked in the mines, but then ultimately uh, he ended up on the streets of Winnipeg and uh, lived uh, pretty much as a homeless man for a period of time, even though we did have a home with my grandparents and they would have welcomed them back at any time. Uh, he chose to live uh, on the streets where it so happened that there were many Second World War veterans that he knew and Indigenous war veterans were also living on the streets at that time in the 50s and 60s. And so he spent a lot of his time with them. <clears throat> and even when he did manage to um, secure some form of income, uh, he would end up staying in some of the hostels and hotels on the Main Street Strip and uh, spent most of his time uh, with his war buddies drinking and became an alcoholic. They. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that for the first 16 or so years of my life, I didn't see him very much. And uh, on the odd time that we did see him, we didn't really uh, connect until um, he finally came home to stay permanently uh, after my oldest brother had been killed uh, while he was in the Navy. <clears throat> and so then he came home and, and stayed with us. But uh, his life had been so difficult and so troubled that he was a troubling figure as well within our home and uh, my grandmother and grandfather continued to be our primary caregivers. Uh, I was uh, actually uh, when my mother died and we were living with my grandparents my grandparents were then in their uh, my grandmother was 57, my grandfather was 63, and uh, so they were an elderly couple, and, and so they themselves were not able to take care of the four of us, uh, an older brother, an older sister, myself, and my younger brother, uh, taking care of four young children, all of us under the age of five, uh, was much too challenging for them. So what my grandmother did was she actually created a child welfare system in her house. And um, three of my aunties who were still living at home were assigned to the three youngest children. So I had an auntie who was assigned to me. I had, uh, there was an auntie who was assigned to my sister and an auntie who was assigned to my younger brother. 
And their responsibility was essentially to take care of us, to make sure that we had uh, meals, that we dressed for school, that we took our, our baths every um, time we were required to do that, that we uh, did our homework. And so all of the things that a mother would normally do, um, our aunties took care of that part of the responsibility. And my grandmother supervised all of that. So she was the, the head of the Sinclair Child Caring Agency. And she made all of the important decisions about our life. So she made decisions about our medical care, about uh, where we went to school, uh, about what clothes we wore, uh, and things like that. So she was uh, still very involved in our lives and we knew, we knew that, but it was uh, our aunts who were more directly involved in, in what we did. And, and uh, the aunt who was assigned to take care of me was my Auntie Josephine. And my Auntie Josephine uh, was a teacher, became a teacher. And uh, I, uh, when she would go off and teach, uh, she would go into some uh, northern communities and she would teach. And when she would go into those communities, I would travel with her and I would stay with her. And I would be like a son to her and I would do all of the things a son does. I would do uh, the chores around the place. I would chop the wood and gather the wood and I would carry the water and uh, take out the garbage and take care of the, uh, the animals, the dog that uh, she always had. And uh, so I was uh, involved in her life in that way as well. <laughs> and so my Auntie Josephine and I were very close. And uh, when she got married, uh, I was about 15 years of age by that time. Uh, when she got married and started a family of her own, then I went back to live with my grandparents and uh, started to become the caregiver to my grandparents as well. And uh, I did all of that work for them that they needed done. And, uh, and so it was uh, a constant uh, family environment in which I was raised. And, I, and uh, while I said at the beginning, I was, it was like I was an orphan. It was only because I didn't have a mother. I had several mothers, actually, my aunties, as well as my grandmother. And um, my grandfather was there. And I had a number of uncles as well who were involved in our lives. And their responsibility was to help us to learn uh, about uh, male things, such as you know how to uh, drive a team of dogs and how to hunt and how to uh, set traps for animals and how to skin animals and things like that. <clears throat> My grandfather had a fishing camp and we would all, all the men and the young boys would go to the fishing camp and we would help take care of the fishing camp while the men went out on the lake. And uh, so uh, that was their responsibility to do that for us. So I had what uh, was a pretty traditional kind of upbringing, even in the absence of my father. Um, but uh, I knew that because of my aunt who raised me, Aunt Josephine was a teacher. Uh, she uh, embedded within me a real love for education and a love for teaching as well as a love for learning. And when I was 12 years old as a birthday present, even though I had asked for a bicycle, she gave me a, a set of encyclopedias. And she said that my responsibility during that year was to read every one of those encyclopedia books and then to answer questions that she would ask of me about what was in those books. And so that 
increased not only my knowledge of the, the world, but it also increased my thirst for learning more about things that were going on around me. And so uh, when I went to high school and uh, was graduating from high school, I wanted to go to university to continue to learn more. And uh, my grandmother had different ideas. She had wanted me to become a priest, but she saw that I really wanted to go to university. So she made me promise that when I went to university that I would use that education for good, that I would use it to help people. And she said, I don't want you to become an educated bum. I want you to be somebody with an education who uses that knowledge to help the people. And so I made that promise to her. And that's a commitment that I've tried to hold to throughout my life. Uh, and every once in a while, you know, I, I tell people that it's a little hard for them to fathom, but every once in a while when I'm struggling with a decision about what to do and uh, when to do things, uh, I, I imagine a conversation in which I'm talking with her about, about a particular problem and she, that conversation uh, in her voice uh, will help me make that decision. And I, I still do that as old as I'm getting. Uh, because I find that to be a useful way to, to think things through, to have that conversation with somebody who is that important to me. And um, the, the, the purpose of my going to university initially was to become a teacher. So I studied education, but uh, um, then when my grandfather passed away, I was in secondary university and my grandmother was living alone. I decided to move back and take care of my grandmother and uh, left university for a while. And then uh, after a couple of years, we were able to get her into a personal care unit where somebody was able to take care of her on a more regular basis, better than I could. Then uh, I returned to university, but this time I made a decision that rather than be a teacher, that I wanted to study law. Um, I really wanted to get into politics. That was my initial thought that I wanted to get into uh, running for office and getting elected to office. And uh, so that's why I went into law because when I looked at the experiences of politicians and the background of politicians, I saw that particularly in, this, in the United States, many, if not most uh, politicians who were elected had law degrees. And so I thought that's uh, almost a mark of instant credibility. So using that knowledge, I went to went back to university and I got into law school and studied law um, for the purpose of getting into politics. But while I was in law school, uh, I became intrigued by the law itself and understanding what law was all about. And I was really quite offended by most of what we were being taught. Um, and so I thought uh, one of the reasons why I went into law was to help people. And I could see that because I volunteered at the legal aid clinic as a law student. And I could see that most of the people who were in need of legal assistance in courts were indigenous people. So I decided to get into that part of law in which I could represent them and do work for them and help them. And so when I finished law school, uh, I started practicing law and my clientele was primarily indigenous. And so that's how my career kind of moved forward. Um, I did think at one point of quitting because uh, I didn't like the way that my clients were being treated or that I was being treated by judges, by other lawyers. 
by prosecutors, by police officers. Um, but an elder said to me that one of the problems I was uh, coming face to face with was that I knew how to be a lawyer and I knew enough about so what it took to succeed in, in the white man's world, as he called it. Um, but I didn't know what it meant to be an indigenous person. I didn't know what it meant to be Anishinaabe. So he encouraged me to learn about that too. He said, you should learn about our laws too, because that will help you be a better lawyer. And if you become a judge, it'll help you be a better judge and it'll help you better help the people. Uh, so that's what I did, started doing that when I was in my early twenties studying our laws and working with elders and learning from elders. And I've been doing it since then, um, having those conversations with knowledge keepers and people who have that information base that uh, we talk about things a lot um, because I have information that others need and they have information that I would like to, to, to ask for as well. And so I participate in many of those conversations even now. And it's because uh, from an indigenous perspective, we need to know um, what would it be like for us today if the white man had never come to this part of the world? And that's a question I think that indigenous societies who have experienced colonialism are always challenged to try to sort, sort out for themselves is when you have come through a period of being colonized or experience of being governed by colonizers, uh, the one thing they try to do is to strip you of your identity, to strip you of your uniqueness, to strip you of your indigenous rights, to ensure that you don't have rights that are superior to what they claim to be their rights as colonizers. So they try to put you into an inferior position. They teach you that you're inferior. They talk about you in an inferior way uh, and they teach their children that they are superior, that they came from a superior society, that they have a superior way of living. And that's been the way that we've all been taught in Canadian school system. Uh, I've always said that Canada's public schools uh, it was really teaching white supremacy uh, for the, the many generations it's been in existence. And it's only recently that it's begun to try to change his focus a bit, to be more inclusive of an indigenous perspective, an indigenous awareness of history. Because I went to public schools and I know that when they talked about indigenous people, they talked about the contact between the early colonizers or the early settlers or the early explorers and indigenous people. They always talked about the, the glory of the explorers, but the uh, inferiority uh, of the indigenous people that they met. They never talked about their civilization, their form of government, their laws, never talked about them as real people. It's like they talked about them almost as they talked about the animals of the forest and the plants of the forest. And so um, that perspective was taught throughout our experience in, in schools. And that idea that indigenous people were inferior and needed to be made to see themselves as inferior and that European kids needed to see themselves as superior. Um, that myth of superiority, that myth of indigenous inferiority uh, combined to create a schism between us. And so 
Uh, I was the athlete of the year in my high school, and I was the class valedictorian. I spoke for 140 graduates uh, who graduated high school with me. And uh, at our, I think it was our 25th reunion, um, uh, I was invited back to speak to the, the, my, my colleagues who graduated with me. And one of the observations I made at that time was, even though you had selected me to be your spokesperson at the, our graduation, I know that many of you always saw me as your inferior. Many of you always saw me as someone who was less than you. Many of you would never have come to my house, would never have spent time outside of school playing with me. And then many of you would not have seen me in the same way that you saw your friends who were not as smart as I was, who were not as strong as I was, who were not as athletic as I was, who were not as smart as I was. Uh, and, and that's not your fault, I said, not because you were born to be a racist, it's because you were taught to be a racist. And that uh, unintentional racism that the school has created is probably the single biggest issue that we have to face today. And it's one that we identified and we talked about it in the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, certainly one that we heard from, uh, from all of the survivors of residential schools. And we heard from their children and from their grandchildren that they too are living in a society that treats them in that way and continues to do so. You know, even today, uh, if I go to a store, I am more likely to be followed by a security guard than any other person who is not Indigenous is. And, uh, and, I, and I know that that happens. I see it happen. I feel it happening. You know, I, I have to deal with people who are constantly asking me questions in the stores. Um, they'll interfere with what I'm doing just to check on what I got. And, uh, you know, they're taught and I know they're taught because <clears throat> I've worked with agencies that do this. When they come to you and they say, is there anything I can do to help you? What they're really doing is checking you out to see if you're there to shop or, or steal. And, um, and if you don't have a good answer to that question, then they keep an eye on you. So I always say, well, I'm really looking for this, um, even though I'm not looking for it. And then when they show me what it is, or where it is, I say, well, that's not quite what I'm looking for. So I think I'll keep looking, but <clears throat> that gets them off my back. Uh, but that's how racism works. It's, it's unconscious. <clears throat> and uh, it's because the systems have ingrained that within us. And uh, it's part of the work that we talked about in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so I, I think what's important um, to understand from the perspective of the work that you're doing as students, and the, the education that you're receiving, the learning that you're doing, is to try to understand how systemic racism works and how it contributes to this schism that we still see in society between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, not only in Canada, but in the United States and in other colonized countries of the world. <clears throat> I recommend to you, if you haven't already read it, of course, the work of Franz Fanon, um, who talked about the experience of colonized people in Africa. And it became like, almost like my Bible when I started 
coming to terms with what I was seeing and what I was trying to understand. Because he said, one of the impacts of colonization is that people will initially come to believe in the colonizer and they will come to believe in the superiority of the colonizer and they'll want to be like the colonizer. But in order to do that, they'll have to try to oppress their own people uh, who are not wanting to do that. And so you'll see this period of time when they become their own oppressors. So then they'll take out their sense of frustration upon their, their people for not being willing to civilize, so to speak, in the same way that they, their ambitions lead them. So they'll they take out their actions against their own people, then they'll take out their actions against um, people who support them. And uh, eventually though, what happens is they begin to realize that this is part and parcel of the impact of colonization and that they are also acting as victims. They've been gaslighted. And that's an expression that Franz Fanon didn't use, but it's one that is now becoming current in modern discussions. They've been gaslighted into believing that anything that's wrong with them, that their inability to be free from racism, their inability to be uh, targeted, their inability to be successful is because there's something wrong with them, because that's the way the system has taught them. And that will then uh, make them look inwards as to whether or not that's true. And when they realize it's not true, then their sense of anger about that and their sense of injustice about that will initially get them to try to get the system changed. But when it doesn't change fast enough, they can take their action out against their oppressor. And, and we see that in indigenous parts of Canada and in indigenous actions around the world. Young indigenous people are becoming frustrated and taking out their sense of frustration no longer upon themselves. The suicide rates are still very high. The dropout rates from school are still very high. And that's a reflection of that, that frustration. But the, the violence um, is reflected in our criminal rates, our criminalization rates. Uh, and we know that uh, Indigenous people are more often uh, likely to go to jail for something, uh, even though a non-Indigenous person might not. But the reality is that most of the Indigenous people who are incarcerated have done something wrong, have broken the law. And sometimes that's because they take action, they're taking action against a society that they don't like uh, because of how it's treated them. And so street gangs are an example of that as well. So that's part of what we see here. It's part of what we see in the United States. The United States has gone through and is going through not only with its indigenous population, but with its black community, of course, uh, the, uh, the impact of that colonization uh, issue, that uh, historical racism issue. And, and uh, they um, are also seeing, uh, more so there than here, um, but they're also seeing the pushback from white society who are more prone to take out their sense of frustration through policing activities, through military activities, and through uh, just um, the sense of people with privilege 
not willing to concede uh, the veracity of what Indigenous people are talking about. We see some of that in Canada. So I always tell people, you know, when the prime minister of our country says we are a nation of law, when he's talking about the Indigenous people who are protesting the pipeline across Wet'suwet'en country, uh, what he's failing to recognize is that Wet'suwet'en people have a legal right to refuse entry onto their territory by virtue of the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and by virtue of their Aboriginal title, which is constitutionally protected. But it's Canada who's misusing the law and is breaking the law by giving permits to people to run their, their pipelines over their territory and other uh, assorted activities as well. And at the same time, we see the RCMP heavy-handedly uh, intervening against Indigenous people who are standing up for their rights there. And yet when Indigenous people are exercising their rights in Nova Scotia by uh, fishing, and we see the white fishermen brutalizing them and destroying their property and destroying their fishnets and destroying them and attacking them, we see the police standing by and doing nothing. And that does not talk about a nation of laws then, that talks about a nation that uh, is concerned about his position of privilege. And so when we're talking about the issue of um, where is this uh, historical colonialism going to lead us? Unless we come to a process of, of just being able to talk about what we do about this together, and that's what reconciliation involves, then we will be allowing those kinds of actions to continue. And we will, in fact, almost be encouraging it because silence on the part of the government is a sense of permission to those who want to do something against those they see as inferior. We just look at the impact of Donald Trump being president in the United States. He, he didn't have to say, he did say, but he didn't have to say, okay, you guys, pick up your guns and go out there and, and protect us from all these black people who are trying to take away, trying to do things that will negatively affect us. Now, he, he has said that, and so people have done that. But even if he didn't say that, just his mere words of encouragement that we are entitled to what we have, and people who say we're not, are not worthy of saying that. Just by saying that, he's encouraging uh, those people who sense that privilege and who have been indoctrinated by this educational process of white privilege, educational process of white supremacy. Uh, he's encouraging them to stand up for themselves against that. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see pushback. We do see it even today. And so we need to be very concerned about how these developments are going to take place going into the future. And so one of the challenges I think that I was at the top of my mind as I became, um, came through the process and became a chancellor of Queen's University was we need to start to educate our future leaders about looking at our society in 
with these kinds of lenses to recognize that we are no longer an institution. We can no longer be an institution that protects our colonial history, that advocates for our colonial history, that is in fact representative of our colonial history. We have to be an institution that really stands up for what is in the best interests of this society in this country. And that means that we have to stand up for what is right and what is just. And that's my main ambition uh, in the short time that I'm gonna be able to spend with this institution is to get this institution to start to improve its moral code, its sense of rightness and sense of justice and its sense of what that means to uh, us as individuals who are here, but also to our institution and the role that it plays in society at large. So, I don't know how much time I took, but I hope we have time for questions and answers because I've run out of things to say. Actually, I haven't, I've got lots of other things I could say, but I think I'll leave time that remains for other people to begin to ask their questions. <clears throat> I want to, incidentally, I forgot to do it at the beginning, but I want to thank Al for those uh, opening words and for his thoughts. Uh, uh, they're always very helpful. I gain a lot of strength from listening to our elders talk about our creation and uh, the uh, fact that we have to give thanks to the earth and give thanks to the life that we have been given. And uh, I talk to my grandchildren all the time about that, that their first responsibility is to protect the earth. And uh, I have a granddaughter who's from the time that she was eight years old, was a very virulent uh, advocate for the earth. And she went to many demonstrations as a little girl and she leads many demonstrations now of young students from high school, her high school and other high schools, um, protesting climate change. Thank you, Al. You're welcome. So I'm in your hands now. Where do you want to go with this? Um, well, we just had a question conveniently pop up into the chat, but thank you so much for that. Um, I don't think anyone would have fallen asleep during your talk. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. It was great to hear about both your work experiences, but also your, your life story and what brought you to the work that you've done. I think that that's been, that's been really great to get to know you a little bit better um, as Chancellor at Queens. So we have a question in the chat from Bill Egnatoff. I'm sorry about the mispronunciation there. Um, and they are asking, are there structural things about the institutions, including our government structures that we have, cre that we have created that themselves have pulled us away from being hospitable to whomever we encounter in our lives? Well, that's a very, very broad question and uh, uh, almost too broad for uh, there to be any limitations placed upon it in, a, in an answer, but let me try to answer it in the context of what I've been talking about. Um, and, uh, and perhaps give you some concrete examples of where I think it, it plays itself out. Probably there is no better example of uh, uh, government structure that uh, uh, is representative of our colonial attitude towards things in our justice system. The way that we 
deal with those who come into conflict with the law in our country is surely reflective of a system that is totally at odds with the traditional way that indigenous people would resolve things. Uh, we have a very punitive justice system. Its orientation is to punish. The laws that are created that are to be enforced in our justice system and our criminal justice system are laws that are intended to remove people from society, either permanently in the case of uh, laws that called for capital punishment or um, temporarily, even for long periods of temporary removal um, because of the fact that there is a belief that once you've shown that you are um, incapable of obeying the laws that the people have determined or obeying the rules of conduct that the people have settled upon, then you are not worthy to live among us and we will put you in isolation elsewhere. So it's got a very punitive orientation to it. Whereas the indigenous perspective of law would be that um, if you have done something that is contrary to the rules of behavior that we require you to follow, then you need to uh, own up to it. You need to take responsibility of it for that. And we will help you learn about the nature of your responsibility. And then we will help you to learn about what you need to do to change that behavior so that you are no longer a person that does that kind of thing. And so it's uh, more about reforming that person and the behavior that they've exhibited. So it's a reformative justice system model. It's, uh, it's trying to change the person so that they don't do that again. Uh, and that the, the intent overall is to uh, acknowledge that uh, when a person is born um, from the time of their creation, when they are born, that they have been given all of the tools necessary to live the good life that the creator intended, but that uh, somewhere along the line, they have forgotten how to do that or that has been uh, taken away from them or that uh, has been interfered with in some way. And so what we need to do is to be able to give you back the ability to do that. And, and that may involve a period of time of learning, uh, going through ceremony, going through work with elders, going through work with women, going through work with men. Um, as I said before, you know, when I was a little boy at a certain point in time, uh, I was taken away from the aunties and the, the women of our community, of our, of our family. And then I was spending time with my grandfather and my uncles. And they were responsible for teaching me about the skills that a man needs to have so that he can provide for his family when he has his own family. And, and that way, the initial learning experience is with the women. Um, so. Uh, my grandfather, other than perhaps telling us stories, uh, but he had no uh, very limited involvement uh, with us uh, when we were little. But uh, when we got to that age where we uh, started to show that we had kind of outlived that capacity for the women to be influential in that way, then 
they were given over to the men to become our main educators and main trainers. And, uh, you know, my, my grandfather used to put it in words that, that uh, kind of made sense to me over the years. And he, he would say that when you're a little boy, um, and, he, and he would talk to me and my brother, when you, when you were little boys, the two of you, uh, he said, if there was just one of you there, I could get a half a day's work out of you. But when the two of you are there, I could get no work out of you. And so that was what his, his rationale was about needing to work one-on-one -on -one with us. And so when, as we got older, then they could work with us in that way. Uh, so when you ask about the, uh, the influence of uh, colonization or the influence of our history upon the structures that we're uh, looking at, you can look at just about every structure in our lives, the educational structure, the medical structures, the um, social welfare structures, the justice system structures, policing structures, military structures, and you can see within them uh, some very strong elements of our colonial past that uh, permeate the way that that system operates to the extent that as an indigenous person, as somebody from a different culture going into that, you are almost uh, at odds with it, uh, either constantly or from time to time. And uh, you are called upon to give up your distinctiveness in order to um, be able to mix thoroughly with those who are there already. Uh, thank you so much. We have another question in the chat from Kaylee. Uh, thank you very much, Chancellor. How can alumni hold the institution to account on truth and reconciliation? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think that uh, there, there are uh, processes, and, and I can only speak from the perspective of the institution that I graduated from because I was uh, on the alumni bodies there, and I assume they'd be the same here. But the alumni is from time to time called upon to engage with the administration and with the faculty uh, about issues of, of uh, interest to the institution. And so when you have those opportunities to voice your concern, take advantage of them. And when you have those opportunities to move for change, take advantage of them. Sometimes you have to do it on an individual basis, or sometimes it just makes sense to do it on an individual basis. Sometimes you do it on a collective basis, but um, understand how the institution works and understand how the institution is failing as well. That's important. And, and then uh, understand how you can contribute <laughs> to changing the way the institution is working. And, and understand, of course, that you have to do it in a respectful way. You can't simply go up and start breaking windows. You, you have to make it uh, a positive experience for everybody and yet you can do it and you should do it uh, because as people who have a connection to that um, it, the, the institution also has a responsibility to you to ensure that it uh, is standing up for those principles that you as one of the graduates uh, one of the alumni from the university can still be proud about having that connection to this institution
Thank you. Um, if anyone wants to follow up on the question they've asked, um, please feel free to do so. You can raise your hand as well um, if you want to engage orally. We do have a question here from Leela Biswanathan. She asks, thank you, or says, thank you, Chancellor Sinclair. Um, do you have thoughts to share about the tensions that emerge when the thoughtful and slower pace that is needed to build relationships and trust between Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous-led institutions goes counter to the timeframes that institutional, including government, policies and plans stipulate for decisions to be made? Well, um, usually it's because people are reactive rather than proactive, and I think that's part of the problem, you know, when... Uh, uh, I, I've had conversations with the Prime Minister when I was in the Senate. I haven't had conversations since then. But when I was in the Senate, um, I would be invited to a conversation with the Prime Minister about the issue of reconciliation. And he would ask me, uh, how are we doing? And, uh, and I'm not revealing any secrets here when I would tell you because this is what I told everybody. Is that the problem that you're having is even though the report is, has been out now for six years. And yeah, even though the, um, the process of getting to that report was made well known to Canadian society, people are still not planning properly for what it is that they need to do. They're still kind of waiting for critical incidents to occur and then they'll do something in reaction to it. Um, and that's part of the problem when it comes to change is that people don't plan for change and therefore um, if you if you don't plan accordingly then uh, you your, your chance of succeeding uh, over the long term you may succeed in quelling the incident at the time but your chance of succeeding and change over the long term becomes that much less you know there's uh, I coached sports for 20 years when I was uh, uh, finished university. And, and one of the things that we always used to say to coaches that we were teaching was if you, when you're, when you're preparing your team and when you're preparing a, a practice session, if you fail to plan, then you're really planning to fail. And that's the problem is that most people most institutions and most of those people who lead institutions fail to plan. So you need to plan um, uh, uh, about what kind of changes uh, are we going to need to put into place. You don't have to have the specifics in mind, you just need to have the objectives in mind. So uh, one objective might be, for example, to improve the relationship with indigenous students or to improve the number of indigenous managers working within this, the administration or to improve the understanding of the way that we uh, have influenced this society as an institution um, rather than <clears throat> suddenly have to account for the fact that you know, at one time Queen's University had a law school named Sir John A. McDonald's School of Law which to an indigenous person meant that we were never going to that law school. Um, but now, uh, even without a name on it, we're quite happy to go to the law school because it's a good law school. Uh, but the name was a barrier. And <clears throat> that's true for um, 
for lots of other elements of major institutions like universities, but major institutions like those that are created and run by governments as well are in the same boat. And that is if you, if you don't recognize and do the analysis to identify where you think you might have problem areas and plan on how you're gonna change that, how you're gonna make things better, you don't plan appropriately, then you will always be reacting to those situations. And that was that that is the problem with government when it comes to reconciliation. You know, that as I said, the TRC report has been out since 2015. And only now are we beginning to see some sort of action. And uh, and they they would tell you some would some would say, well, you know, we wanted to engage in a process of uh, dialogue and a process of consultation before we started taking action. I said, yeah, but the problem is you didn't even do the process of consultation. You just kind of pushed things off until suddenly people said, what the hell are you doing? And now they're saying, oh, okay, well, we have to do something. So they're doing something. But you know, there's of the, they, they say, for example, of the 94 calls to action that they started acting on 48 of them. Um, well, the fact that you formed a committee to look at the calls to action is not an action. It's just, it's just part of the planning process. You really do need to do more than that. Yeah, there's many things they could have done um, right from the get-go, and they didn't do it, mainly because they never asked themselves, where do we want to be in 10 years? Where do we want to be in 20 years? Where do we want this institution to be? in the long term and uh, what do we want to be able to say to it or say about it when we leave thank you so much <laughs> al do you want to do you have a response or do you want to follow up I, I don't know if it's a response or or, uh, or a question or <clears throat> but um anyway is my, my thought is on this, um, 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 Mr. Sinclair, is that uh, um, when I'm thinking about this truth and reconciliation is that, is, is, uh, is I really like the way you're wording stuff and then, um, uh, the way I am in, 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 in my learning is that I like to hear a lot of the, the way that it's taught in in the schools and, and, and stuff like that and at different levels of government and stuff. <clears throat> um, but at the same time, I have to think about, um, and you said it is, I, I have to think about me being um, um, uh, um, and, and having to having my own background teachings. And so how do I, how do I look at this? Uh, truth and reconciliation. Um, I, I respect the, the 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 way that it's written and everything and and that, but I'll, uh, but I still got to look back at my 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 teachings from my community, my 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 people, the the Confederacy. All of those things have to take part in 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 me learning, and and coming to some understanding of how this could work and how it can how we can put things into place to make it a, a better place than that. And one of the things I really struggle with in, 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 um, in, 
in uh, hearing the talks at the school is is about decolonization. Yeah, and so that is part of the reconciliation in that. But decolonization is, and when we're in an institution, to me, is is and and listening to both sides, uh, knowing the the academic fields, education, but also understanding my own my own culture's education. And, and, and seeing that um, decolonizing isn't, isn't ever gonna go away. I mean, colonizing is never gonna go away. So how can, why do we fool our people with using that word decolonizing? I can see indigenizing spaces within a university in that, but I know that we'll never decolonize because we always gotta go back to <laughs> what the institution has in place. And we have to reword what we're saying. So if I'm saying what I'm, what, what's true to my heart, but when I have to put it on a paper and, and, and submit it to the university, I have to change it to, to their, their, their understanding and stuff. So it loses that content of, of being indigenous to, to some extent. So where does this decolonization fit into all of this um, truth and reconciliation. I guess that's uh, <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, at the risk of uh, creating a fire here, there, there's probably going to be a big reaction to this conversation that you and I are about to have now. Um, decolonization is a colonizing word, just so people understand. If you think about it, it is a word that comes from the colonizing community, the community that says, well, okay, well, we've gone too far, folks, so let's let's decolonize. And it's a negative. It's also, so it's a word in which we said, let's try to undo what we have done. And you can't, un, you can't undo things that you've done easily. Um, and in most cases, you probably can't undo them at all. It's like trying to unring a bell. You know, you've, you've got the, the influences have permeated too many elements of life and too many parts of society. So uh, I've never really felt that the concept of decolonization makes any sense to me um, because it is, uh, first of all, the negative, and second of all, it is a, it's a, it, it is part of a colonizing, a colonizing process. And so I, I, I don't like the term, to be quite frank. And, uh, and I realize that that's going to put me at odds with a lot of people in various faculties who favor it. But it's because the term itself uh, doesn't really speak to what needs to be done. What needs to be done is that you need to take a more positive and proactive approach about where is it we want to go, not how do we want to stop being what we have become? We also want to talk about uh, how do we become better? And what does better mean? Where do we want to go in the future? And that's not a process of, of decolonization. That's a process of um, validation process of finding uh, answers that work for the future and that will work 
today to help us get to that future that we want. And I recognize as well that, you know, decolonization often also is said to refer to looking at various concepts that we're using and various institutions that we have built and getting rid of them. Um, but again, that's a process that will still leave us with nothing unless we talk about what is it we're going to put in its place. If you want to get rid of a, of a uh, uh, decision-making process that because it's fundamentally flawed uh, because of our uh, European way of thinking, then what are we going to use in order to come to a process that is uh, useful to us so that we can make decisions and that we can still uh, participate with each other in a meaningful way. So whether you call that indigenization or you simply call that uh, growing together or you call it reconciliation or whatever it is that you call it, uh, you have to recognize what it is that you're doing and why it is that you're doing that. You know? And one of the things that uh, I do talk about is that, uh, you know, if, if the purpose of reconciliation, as many people uh, have adopted from the TRC report, purpose of reconciliation is to create a relationship of mutual respect. Um, before we can get there, we have to understand the importance of um, doing what we can to, to assist Indigenous people to gain their self-respect and to respect that, um, that there is that need for Indigenous youth particularly, but uh, Indigenous people generally to regain their sense of validity, not validation, but their sense of validity, uh, because that uh, so much time has been spent in the institutions of this country, particularly the educational institutions, but the institutions of this country denying the validity of indigenous identity, the, the validity of indigenous rights, the validity of indigenous presence. Um, and so that destructive approach in the, of the past not only has to stop, but we have to recognize that there uh, now will need to be a period of regrowth for indigenous communities to come to its own terms about who they are, who it is or what it is. And so I, I think people need to understand that that's a necessary pre-step before the uh, issue, the entire issue of the mutual relationship can really be achieved. So thank you for the question, Alan, it's a good one. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so we have another question in the chat from Matthew Gwanter. Uh, spirituality, land and language are closely linked in indigenous culture, I have learned. We often open with land acknowledgement, but does that really address the need for land rights of indigenous people? Also, can you shed light on the strain between free enterprise pressure to allocate land to individuals and community sharing foundation of indigenous people? Uh, okay, well, those are two separate issues. So let me um, let me deal with the first thing about land acknowledgements. So one of the the issues, of course, is that land acknowledgements are generally seen to be a, a necessary and positive step towards um, 
trying to validate the relationship that uh, institutions have with indigenous people. So acknowledging that this building or these this meeting is occurring on lands that have traditionally been lands of the Anishinaabe or the Haudenosaunee or the uh, whatever tribe of the area it is, um, is merely like saying, um, when you enter somebody's house, I acknowledge that I'm in your house and that uh, this is your place. And uh, so if you think about it in terms of the fact that I, that I am in your place, um, what does that mean to you? What does that say to you as the one who is making that acknowledgement? And, and that's, that's the, the basis upon which those land acknowledgements should be shared. It's not simply saying, uh, <clears throat> I acknowledge that I'm here and I, I'm in your house, but it's not yours anymore. Uh, you can't say it for that reason. Um, because if you're saying it for that reason, then it's almost insulting. Uh, and if that's the, the reason that you're saying it, that you used to have this land, but you don't have it anymore. But I acknowledge that you used to have this land. Um, and I've heard some people say that's what land acknowledgements are all about. Um, and that's not true. Land acknowledgements are about the fact that uh, I recognize that you have a right to be here. Uh, see, it's, uh, it's a little different than perhaps what most people are using it for. And uh, therefore, you should always ask yourself, why are we doing this? And then do it for the right reason. Do whatever is appropriate, given your understanding of what it is that you're acknowledging and what, what, what it says about the relationship that you have and want to have. Uh, and the second part of the question is uh, to comment upon the conflict or the strain between um, uh, capitalism and indigenous, uh, uh, I guess it's uh, private ownership and uh, co collective ownership of uh, indigenous people. Um, they're, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Indigenous people did believe in, in private ownership rights and private property rights. Uh, uh, stories are, are rife among some of the knowledge keepers that I've spoken to that um, when a man has his tipi up and his family lives in a, in a part of the, the land or part of the uh, village, that that is his, that's, that's his area and that you do not have the right to go in there willy-nilly just because you're part of the tribe. So you can't go in there and take his property out of there. You can't go in there and take his weapons or take his property or take his blankets or anything that is his within the teepee. You can't enter his teepee without his permission. Uh, so, so this idea that indigenous people do not have a sense of private rights or private ownership is a false, uh, fact. And, and so therefore, uh, you need to dismiss that from your thinking. Uh, but what's the nature of that relationship and uh, the relationship that uh, the, the people have to the collective? And, and one, of the, one of the fundamental teachings that's almost universal among Indigenous tribes that I've traveled amongst has been that even though you may own something that you have the right of say over something that does not mean that you have the right to keep it away from people who need it um, and that's what uh, giveaways are about and that's what 
Sundance giveaways are about. That's what potlatches are about. It's because if, if you accumulate uh, property, then you have an obligation to share it with the rest of the people who are in need of that kind of property. So potlatches, I don't know that if any of you have ever been to a potlatch ceremony on the West Coast or a Sundance ceremony on the prairies, uh, and I imagine they have similar ceremonies in the East as well. Um, but in those ceremonies, um, the people in the community who have uh, wealth, for lack of a better word, but who have property and who have assets are uh, called upon, uh, in so many words, called upon to share their wealth with the people in the community who do not have the wealth, um, recognizing that Everybody in the community has an obligation to be able to take care of themselves, but that some may not be able to. And therefore, we need to take care of those who do not have. Yeah. That often means young, younger couples, that means older people, it may mean uh, people who, uh, who the head of the family is, who is injured and can't provide for his family. So you have an obligation to share and take care. Uh, just as governments uh, distribute money to people who are in need, um, the indigenous view of things is that we also have an obligation to share with those who are in need. Um, I'm going to have to begin to move on to another event that I've got organized for my afternoon, but I can take a couple more questions if you want. We have a couple more in the chat here. Um... Maybe, I, I don't know if this one can be dealt with quickly, but um, it's a good question from Candace Martin about any tips on how to survive in the face of racism, be it intentional or unintentional bias in academia or work when just starting out. Yeah, one of the challenges uh, with calling out racism, and I, I think we all have an obligation to call out racism when we see it and when we hear it, uh, is, uh, the, uh, the obligation that I think we all have to be anti-racists, and that is not simply not to be racist. It is also about challenging those who are racist. And sometimes challenging those who are racist will put you in a, in a dangerous place, so you need to be careful about that. You don't want to be putting yourself into a place of danger, particularly if you have, you know, you're in a situation in a restaurant or something, and you have children with you, or you have uh, elderly people who can't defend themselves. You don't want to be in a situation where you put them in danger. But calling out, out racism, calling out racists is a necessary obligation that we all have. And I think we need to figure out, um, uh, you need to figure out, and we all have an obligation to figure out how to do that. Um, and I think we also need to call upon institutions to develop and promote and uh, protect those who call out and address anti-racism uh, efforts as well. Um, because um, sometimes, you know, the, the, the people who, who identify racist publicly are themselves uh, accused of, of doing things inappropriately. And, and I think that finding a plan or developing a plan by which individuals can do that safely 
is one thing, but also protecting them once they've done it is also an important part of that whole process. So I think all institutions have, have that obligation. It's one of the things that I, I talked to the human resources people about, uh, what are we doing if somebody identifies a professor, for example, who says inappropriate things in the course of a lecture or maybe publicly or writes about them in a, in a paper? Um, what do we do if, if a student wants to stand up against the professor who is doing that? Um, are we doing enough to protect the students? And that's important. It's important that we do that. It's not important that we recognize it. We have to do it. It's important that we actually do it. So, um, I think that answers the question. There's not a apologize. But... Uh, we have one more question. Um, it's kind of a long one from Sue Manson. Uh, thank you, Chancellor Sinclair. Uh, I really have more of a comment and a wish than a question, but perhaps you could comment on it. The answer you gave to your first question made me think of the lack of knowledge of Indigenous history among Canadians. I took the UFA Indigenous Canada MMOC last year and learned all about char characteristics of Indigenous justice systems, the importance of women in Indigenous society, the worldview being just some examples. And I've often thought that every elementary and high school student should take this course as a beginning to their education of this history. It could be so simple, yet it seems so difficult. Uh, yeah, one of the uh, institutions that is pushing back against uh, <clears throat> changing the way that children need to be educated uh, in this country in order to address the, the white colonial history favoritism that exists within the public school system is, is, is the school systems themselves. Uh, in some parts of the country, and Alberta is a good example of that actually, in some parts of the country, they uh, refuse to acknowledge that there's anything wrong with the way they teach the history of this country. And they in fact have given direction that uh, teachers can talk about residential schools at higher grades, but they can't talk about residential schools to lower grade children because it would be too scary or too frightening or too uh, difficult for them to understand and appreciate. And therefore, uh, you should reserve that knowledge process uh, to those who are uh, older and in, in the high school years. Problem with that is that by the time you're 13 or 14, much of what you believe in about people is already ingrained in your system. You know, we are influenced in the public schools right from the moment we first attend school uh, by the teachers, by who we see as our teachers, by uh, the books that we are called upon to read. And uh, and, and by the stories that we are told by the movies that we are called upon to watch or the shows or the videos that we are called upon to watch, even by the games that we are called upon to play um, are all influences uh, in, in our lives as young children that then create a situation in the future where, where we are often perceiving indigenous people in a very different way and uh, in a negative way often. So by then it's almost too late. Um, so I, I really believe that we can be passing this information along. 
uh, at earlier ages. Um, so uh, the, the reality is that uh, that uh, we need to do more about the way we educate children, uh, and we're not doing enough even today. Thank you, Chancellor, for this, I mean, this entire session, for your generosity and your time and sharing your stories with us and your experiences and your insights. Um, and I learned a lot and I hope we continue learning from you as you serve your tenure here as Chancellor. Um, and also thank you to Al. I think he had to leave, but thank you to him as well for the welcome yeah. and for the conversation that you two have had. Um, and thank you to the audience, of course, as always. We um, really appreciate everyone who attends SNID. We hope to see a lot of you next term for our um, lineup next term. Pay attention to that in your inboxes for that. Um, but yeah, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you again, Chancellor. I, I don't know if you wanted to say anything. And thank you very much, really. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it is such a pleasure and such a privilege, you know, uh, to be in conversation with you, uh, Chancellor. Uh, we, you know, thank you very much. And, uh, and next term, you know, we will continue these discussions, definitely. Um, so stay tuned. Thank you. I, uh, I look forward to when I'll be able to travel and be on campus more regularly than we can during the pandemic pandemic has interfered with everybody's travel plans and of course uh, mine included and uh, I want to I want to assure you that at some point in time you're just going to find me wandering around the campus not sure what to do and who to talk to and when you do feel free to take me by the hand and ask me questions so sounds good <laughs> all right thank you thank, thank you very you. much bye thank you right. okay bye everybody Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.